and welcome back to Getting to the Top, where I interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey in hopes of inspiring you on your own journey into leadership or throughout your leadership journey, and hopefully you have the desire to follow in their footsteps. Today, I have the incredible honor of interviewing Lady Mariam Jen. She is an award-winning technologist and pioneer in system change, a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. In September 2017, she won an innovation award at the Global Awards as a goalkeeper for her work in advancing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals by supporting young women, girls, and governments globally. I met her in 2013 um, at the World Bank, where she was an awardee as well. And she has been, um, I got married that same year, and my husband has since described her as my ultimate girl crush. Welcome, Lady Mariam. Oh, thank you so much, Raquel. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. It's amazing. <laughs> no, no, no. I have the honor is entirely mine. So you are doing such phenomenal things globally with girls and coding. And I wanted to just start by what you're doing and why you're doing and what is I am the code? I mean, that's a very good question. But I think to your point earlier, you know, everything has not just started where we are today. For me to sit down with you to, uh, you know, uh, have this podcast is just absolutely unbelievable because you are somebody I respect in the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been doing so much work in uh, on climate change issues, but also, you know, you are respected in in, in the world. And, and uh, I'm, I'm so honored uh, to sit here and share some conversation. So everything has not begun like this, uh, you know, with all the work we are doing. Uh, you know, I, I was born in Senegal, in West Africa, uh, and uh, unfortunately had a very terrible childhood. Um, I'm writing my book at the moment, uh, really to, uh, it's been a healing process to share my story, but also to, you know, use my story as a tool to educate government, private sector, but also, you know, women and girls growing up in these communities. Um, unfortunately, my mother uh, came from an aristocrat family in Senegal. Uh, if you really know the history of Africa, uh, you realize that, uh, you know, Senegal was one of the country where uh, literature was, uh, you know, uh, you know, at its essence, uh, President Senghor was our president. He was the first black uh, man to go to the Academy of Frances. And my mother was the assistant of the President Senghor. And so my mother come from a family um, of uh, aristocrat from the Tukular descent. And uh, her mother had 14 children. And so she was the youngest one and she was sexually abused as a child. I just discovered that as I write my book. Uh, and uh, my grandfather was the first black African uh, teacher in West Africa. So the whole education and the passion of my work now, I can realize why I'm doing what I'm doing. But, uh, you know, we unfortunately she got pregnant and uh, and abandoned us as children because in the, you know, it's just like the royal family in the United Kingdom. You can't have children who don't belong to, a, you know, a, a very uh, traditional marriage. And so. This created a big, big problem in the in the intellect and the elite industry in Dakar. We're almost the center of the conversation. And so, uh, you know, that led my mother to, you know, make, a, I am hoping, I'm thinking the wrong decision or the bad decision or maybe the right decision. I don't know. But to send us in a village called Kaulak, uh, where I grew up um, as a young girl, my twin brother who lives today in Germany. 
And so we had a terrible childhood, didn't go to school, uh, you know, we're bouncing from, from family to family. I was counting the other day with my lawyers, uh, you know, 28 foster houses, wow. uh, didn't have the education I need. Like my today, my friends are from Harvard. They had Harvard University degrees, uh, you know, Cambridge degrees, the ministers, uh, the vice presidents, they had like big jobs. Uh, and I never had this as a as a young woman. And so, um, and, and that kind of like really created a big problem for me psychologically. And so when I was 13 years old, I was taken away from Senegal to France. Uh, my mother's family, they own an airline. Uh, you know, if you remember airline, Air Afrique was a big airline. And I was taken away in France. But before I was taken away in France, I was sexually abused by my Quranic teacher. My country is a Muslim country where, um, you know, uh, a young girl between seven and 11, she needs to read the Quran before she get her puberty. Mm. And so I was, I was sexually abused by this man. And so uh, that led me to have a terrible childhood. So really tumultuous childhood between, I think between, uh, you know, by the age I was until like 2021, I can't remember so many things, but I think I had a very difficult childhood and very difficult teenagehood. And so that's what made me who I am today, sitting here talking to you. But, uh, you know, it's been a very, very difficult journey. And so many people don't know about my journey. And actually, I don't know much about my journey because I've been trying to figure out what happened, why my mom did what she did, why, uh, you know, why all of this happened. And so, yeah, it's been a... A challenging journey but what is really good is that i'm sitting here right now talking to you <laughs> but did you were you ever able to have that conversation with your mother about why and and what would compel her to to do this because i think it's such an incredible part of your story absolutely she died in 2020 just before uh you know uh in 2019 actually just december she died um and no we never had a chance she never wanted to talk about it uh, again you know these are royal families they don't want to talk about issues they want to keep everything inside of them uh she was an aristocrat you know a woman who you know had everything she was the first part of the first uh you know women who went to france uh you know after the colonialization 1960s so they don't really answer uh questions um so my father was the first maritime expert in senegal so she never allowed me to ask questions so we never knew who our father was uh and then i've been i've been trying to find it so i have to really take uh individual action to go and hunt for to know who my father is why am i the way i am you know why am i so passionate about education in women and girls so through uh, investigation i find out uh you know my identity beautiful and such such a a, a burden to carry and then you decide with all of that with all of that that you are coping with and, and working out on your own that you want to help girls in Africa learn how to code that is then spilled over to, to girls globally to learn how to code. So how did you decide that that was the thing? How did you yourself just get into technology? Well, I couldn't get a job when I came to the UK, you know, fast forward in having all those trouble and tumultuous childhood. I uh, ended up in a refuge center in France, came to the UK uh, in a YMCA here. So when, uh, you know, I just couldn't get a job, you know, I was doing cleaning jobs, working bars and hotels in restaurants. Uh, I couldn't speak English at that time and just working hard, really. You know, I didn't have any identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was on this planet, uh, to be honest with you, um, Raquel. And then uh, I think um, what really changed probably my life is when I was 16, I was got picked up by the French police. 
But I started really understanding that actually I'm a human being. When I came to the UK, I was going to a local library every day, uh, you know, reading and writing. It was a safe space for me. Um, and I started to really understand, actually, I am a human being. There's something, something's wrong here. Uh, there's a systematic problem here. Someone has done something wrong to me. I didn't know how to sort it out, uh, but I realized that at that time, the first people I met in my in my life was Bono and Bob Geldof. They were the two white guys who were extremely powerful people, have money, have power, and they had the advocacy to speak for Africa. But no black person, no black woman, no African at that time, you know, was uh, audacious enough to say to them, no, we don't want your problems. We don't want you to talk on behalf of Africa. Then I wrote an open letter for the first time. And that time Google was just born. I wrote my first letter to Bono and Bob Geldof and told them to back off from Africa. And that conversation took, uh, you know, uh, took uh, landed at in the Guardian. And so many people start talking about my work. But I also took that opportunity to go and change the family planning law of my country, where right. I wanted to make sure when women have uh, children, they can abort them uh, because we didn't need to be born. But I guess, uh, you know, we had to be born because so I can be here with you today. But so many women in Africa are childless. Uh, you know, they've been through different abortions because they're hiding it. But also my mother, I'm sure my mother, if she knew there was uh, some options available for her, I don't think she would go through the difficulty uh, she'd been to as a woman and she died today. So I'm going really backward to say, why are we doing this? And so I'm a pioneer in system change. I try to think about systems, why things happen, why people make the same mistakes again, 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 what we can do moving forward to make things better. And so in 2016, I was uh, 2013, 14, I was invited to uh, be one of the anchors of the Sustainable Development Goals. People who wrote it, uh, you know, think about it, think about the goals, the targets. I was one young person in the room sharing my ideas until the Sustainable Development Goals were formed. And that led me to uh, give a big talk at the UN to say that I will teach 1 million women and girls how to code because at that time I knew how to code seven coding languages. I did that in two years. Uh, my peers were probably, you know, doctors and they did amazing work in their own rights, but they didn't know how to code. And I realized that if I knew how to code, this would probably differentiate me from my peers. Uh, and then I got picked up by the World Economic Forum. And this gave me leverage to really go out there and fight for social justice, uh, but also for women's rights, girls' rights, but also focus on reskilling women. If when you reskill a woman or give a woman a skill, when a woman have a skill, she will have a job. Unfortunately, she doesn't have to sell herself. She doesn't have to do anything demeaning. Uh, because she got the skills. And so I then focus on purely in making sure women and girls across the world have the skills. They need. And when I mean skills, I need coding skills, digital skills, mm -hmm. uh, you know, climate change skills, understanding how to speak, how to communicate, how to write, how to write your blog, how to do social media. You know, we're all in a world where only we have, we have divided the world, Raquel, in three, in three ways. The have, the have not, and the leftovers. I care mm. about the leftovers. The people who are left over, I care about them because I was left over by my family, by my mother, by society, but also only when I joined the World Economic Forum and these big networks, these big connections, the people starting to pay attention. But we have millions of women and girls today, as we speak right now, who don't have connections, they don't have money, they don't have funding, they don't, they don't have you, they don't have me, they don't have mentors. They don't have guidance. And so that's why I'm, I'm totally focused in making sure that, 
you know, before I leave this earth, many women and girls are being supported. So how did you learn to code? Um, what, what was it? Was it because of this letter to Bono? How did you learn to code? So I learned to code in the local library. So I didn't start with coding. I started reading encyclopedia. My English was very, very terrible. <laughs> now I have got a British accent, looks like it. But my English was very terrible. I couldn't speak English. I really didn't understand anything. So, but I love the Excel book. I also love the encyclopedia and dictionaries. So I was just reading and really absorbing so much information in my brain. You know, one of the things maybe your audience will want to know, when you have traumatic background, you have photographic memory, you don't forget. So I will never forget anything. I had this like from a PTSD backlash from Senegal, from the village, from all of that when I was growing up. But I would not forget what happened to me. And I was really determined to find out what happened to me. And then Google wasn't born. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have all these social media before. And but Google had something very unique called the the blog, right? It's like a pink A where you can go mm-hmm. actually and write something, and when you write something, it transfer it translates in a, in a, in a page. And so mm-hmm. I then started writing, you know, bad English, very angry black woman, <laughs> mm-hmm. writing about all this stuff about them. And then in the end, I said to them, "Back off from Africa." And that blog, that open letter, got picked mm-hmm. up by the Guardian, and so and then they they read it. They understood it. Uh, so I started getting invited at conferences to talk about, you know, aid in Africa with my friend mm-hmm. Dambezo Moyo and talking about all of this stuff in, in, in that time. Many Af- we didn't have the consciousness. I think what we brought in the market, uh, Dambezo and I and many, many, many of my fellow Africans is bring a consciousness on aid in Africa. And then mm-hmm. Kofi Annan backed us and Paul, Paul, Paul Kagame and many leaders start to understand actually what these women are saying is true. But we didn't have the audition, the, the audacity. We didn't have the audacity. We didn't have the, uh, you know, the audience, the you know, the agency to actually talk on behalf of Africa. We were not talking on behalf of Africa, but wanted to make sure people are aware that someone is taking Africa uh, for granted. Someone is taking mm-hmm. advantage of Africa, and that's how I started blogging, talking about it, um, building my website companies calling me saying, you know, we, we like what you do. Can you build a website for us? Can you build an app for us? You know, I build many, many apps. Then I got invited by the president government to sell them software. So then I started my company selling software uh, into many, many companies today in Brazil. If the, if every citizen in Brazil have got a, uh, you know, a passport, I sold the software to the Brazilian government. For example, if you are today at Terminal 5, uh, you know, uh, swiping your passport, that's a Oracle software. If you are right now, um, you know, today, uh, for example, you know, uh, looking at your birth certificate in Mozambique, I sold that to the Microsoft, uh, you know, to the Mozambican government. Then I focused solely on technology and software, but also mm-hmm. trying to get government to make sure they buy the right software uh, that is linked to skills and job creation for women in marginalized communities. Uh, and that's how I've been doing for, uh, since. And so that's what my core mission is, making sure that any software we build, we create, uh, you know, is helping communities across the world. And, and so you had this passion for technology and then decided that you wanted to help girls. So how did you decide that that was the thing that, 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 you know, would, would unlock capacity, would, would give them the ability to get these jobs. And how did you start? Who were the first girls? How did you start with teaching them how to code? 
I was sitting in meetings uh, where companies were making a lot of money. For example, my organization uh, bought Google in Africa. You know, I was called, I was in, in, in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, and called by, by a very good friend of mine to say, you're the only person we can trust to this event right now in Africa. So for the first, the Google app right now, if you are losing using the Google app for your information and your audience, this Google app was tested in Senegal. I helped write the Google policy for Africa. So today, if you see Google uh, in Africa, I wrote the policy for Google Africa. And so I really focusing on the tech hubs in Africa, Google, the policies in that time, many people were not talking about, uh, you know, the African continent as a, as an innovative and frontier you know, continent to bring all this technology. And I was sitting in this, these meetings where I realized these companies, the French companies, many companies were making so much money, but I couldn't see any other woman in that meeting. I couldn't mm. see how the, the millions of dollars they're making is affecting uh, women. My country, Senegal on its own was making so much, uh, you know, they were spending so much money on, on Microsoft, for example, every ministry in Senegal was using the Microsoft solution. But will it be translated to the African communities? No. Will we get women coming and working for those organizations? No. Then I start putting the barriers and say, saying, if you want to really work for Africa, with Africa, you have to start really making sure that you involve women and girls. And then that led me in 2016 to make a massive commitment to the world. It's a global commitment. It's not my, my only commitment. And the idea was to get 1 million women and girls to learn how to code by the year 2030. So these girls are marginalized girls. They're not part of your mainstream girls. They're not part of private school girls. They're girls who are refugees, uh, you know, are working in in, uh, in difficult places. Uh, they are marginalized. They've been through prostitution. They've been through difficult life. Not, not because they want to. Just because society has built up a, a kind of like a barrier to stop them being who they want to be. And so I'm I'm getting those young women today. We have 38,000 of them since 2016 mm -hmm. in 78 countries where the girls are now learning how to code. They're getting jobs. And my goal is by 2030, we can all sit up at the United Nations and say, this is the first African, this is the first African-led global movement that not only bring everyone together, but also taught 1 million women and girls how to code. And ultimately what you will do, they will work for you, they work for your partners, they work for people. Because when a woman has got a job, uh, she got skills, she got dignity and pride. Doesn't need to go and do anything else. But women without skills, are struggling right now in this world. Yeah, yeah. And so, how how the girls how the girls taken to coding? Were they were they skeptical at first, or were they really excited to learn something new? Um, how did they get over sort of the the thought process that you know this is this is a man's thing to do? How did you get them sort of interested in STEM? Well, the girls loves coding. They they are fascinating young women and girls. I started in Senegal with 100 girls, you know, with my friend Uli Matasar, who's today the Minister of Finance of Senegal. So she's the first woman to sit as a Minister of Economy of Senegal, my, my dear friend Uli Mata, very proud of her. So she's the one that first really supported us. And so I think that's why this, this is why it's important we have this podcast, you and I, because when women support other women, you see a progress because she betted on me. She gave me $10,000 in 2016 and said, come and do a hackathon. She didn't have to do that. She was had the big mm -hmm. position 
in this organization. She said, I want you to come and launch it in Senegal. When we went to Senegal, what I wanted to do is a hackathon, uh, focus on human trafficking. Because I wanted the Senegalese people to understand what human trafficking was. Because I was trafficked as a child because of the lack of data, but also the lack of uh, you know, database and, and security and policing and safeguarding in my country. So Uli Matasar uh, did this. Uh, you know, that led to many conversations today in Senegal. Senegal is the first country in West Africa that promulgates a law when you rape a child without consent, uh, you know, you go to jail. This took mm-hmm. 10 years for us to achieve wow. this. So I think that uh, one of, what, what I'm saying here uh, Raquel, is that we, what we need to do is not only getting the young women and girls coding, but we also need to address global issues, global issues such as gender equality, peace mm-hmm. and justice. We can all see right now what is happening in Nigeria, what is happening in, uh, in, in Ukraine, what is happening in all the African countries, in Ethiopia, everywhere, in Somalia, the drought. Young women and girls are not eating. They're lacking food because someone is not collaborating. Someone is not taking care of the other person. And the more we work together, uh, the more we collaborate, the better it is. So that's what my work is, really bringing girls to learn how to code, but so helping them understand the global issues. Because when a young woman, for example, right now sitting down in Trinidad and Tobago, and what climate change issues are, when she's 18, 19, 20, she will become a woman of power, a woman of climate, someone who understands exactly what I need to do to help my, my city, my country, and my people. And that's why your work is absolutely amazing to have these hubs uh, you have in your country to make sure you're educating your people. Absolutely. And I think the thing that people think about with climate change is that, oh, well, it's doom and doom. There's a lot of money being spent on climate action. There's a lot of money being invested in the transition. And we cannot continue to be left behind, not as women, not as people of color, not as anybody. So we have to understand that there are opportunities in all of these spaces and there are opportunities that we need to take on and lead with. So I'm absolutely passionate about the transition economy and that we need to rip and replace and do things very, very differently. But we also need to create a new, hopeful, inclusive um, economy that that has equal representation of, of women and people of color. Absolutely. It's, it's a non-negotiable. I mean, you are right now, we go into COP27, where COP, you know, you and I have been to so many COPs in our lives. The reason why I'm boycotting the COP27 is because I've been to COP26, you know, so what's the point going to COP27 when we can have the same conversation again, 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 because my girls' lives are not getting better by sitting at COP27. So the, the flight I'm going to pay and money and hotel going to COP17, wandering around the corridors of meetings, I'm going to take that money and put, you know, get my girls tablets and computers and feed them. I think also we need to boycott these COP, COP, COP organizations unless people start realizing actually our work has no impact. You know, going to Egypt, spending $2,000, $3,000 on a hotel is not changing the life of young women and girls right now sitting down in your country, in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, where girls are having one meal a day. So we need to decide what is priority. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, as much as I, I I agree that we need to take drastic measures, I'm also not boycotting COP27 because I think it's really important for us to have to have a I'm an activist. You understand. A, I don't want to say that I'm a passive active activist, but I'm a I'm an inclusive activist. I'm like, we all have to have a seat at the table to have the conversation. So I will take the baton 
and and um, and advocate on behalf of women and girls. But I also think that some of these spaces give us a chance to speak to each other eh? and to get mm, those those strength in numbers that we need. Because I find that at these major conferences, the collaboration with with Caribbean people is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Where we you mm. know we're bringing in external resources, but we're collaborating and understanding together what we're doing because some of the things and I was having this conversation with a friend um, last week about how difficult it is to travel around Africa how difficult it is to travel around the Caribbean and I think we are being physically kept separate and that is impacting our ability to collaborate our ability to 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 have strength in numbers and we need to see that that separation and and get rid of it we need to come together all of us and, I mean, and, 2023, you are absolutely right. 2023 will be the year of collaboration. You know, we cannot do this alone because we don't have all the answers, uh, Raquel. You know, we've been doing this for so long now. How many years have you been doing this? You've been talking about this for so long. But at mm -hmm. the same time, everything you're talking about, there's no impact. So what is the impact, right? What can mm -hmm. is, What is the collective impact? Your, your impact in your country is absolutely magnificent. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But we need to take that impact to Africa, to Brazil, mm -hmm. to China, everywhere, because your knowledge must be viral everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. But unless we accept that, you know, uh, you know, your country can change uh, some of the policies in my country, it's not going to work. And I think this is why I'm calling for humanity. For yeah, we must listen to each other with reciprocity, not just listening because we know better. Uh, we have the connection, we have the money, we have the power. But listen to every single sentence you are saying, because what is working in your country can absolutely work in my country in Senegal. It's one single planet. There's no planet B and we are creating planet B. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely true. So I want to take it back now to, you know, and this is going to seem strange, but I'm curious. What kind, considering your upbringing and all of the trials and tribulations and all of the work that you're doing for women and girls, what kind of parent are you? <laughs> what kind of parent I am? I'm a lovely father. I think I'm a good parent. My my son is lovely. Um, I test my, I measure my parenthood uh, on on my son Pierre. He's a young man, and uh, you know, I asked the other day. I was saying, if I leave this earth now, what will Pierre do? I know he will do his dishes. He will make omelets. He will wash his clothes. He'll be very sad to not have me around. But I think he's gonna he's gonna survive, and uh, and then I also install wisdom in him to realize that the world there is no sense of entitlement. Although my mother and my father biologically put me on this world, uh, mm -hmm. you know I'm on my own, and because I'm on my own, I'll die alone. But at the same time, my legacy, the legacy I want to leave is every single person I touch. My voice through this podcast will be heard again, 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 again. And I hope that, you know, the wisdom I have and what I've learned through sadness and, and, and difficulty and, uh, and challenges, uh, you know, always telling the truth is absolutely important. And so my, I, I'm hoping that uh, my son will take this and, and, and push it forward. But I think I'm a... I'm a I'm a tough parent. Uh, I include tough love and 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 really to teach him that you know, um, you know you are you are your you're responsible for your life. You know I've learned that. Uh, you know it doesn't matter. It's no money. It's no connection. It's no jewelry. It's no brands. It doesn't matter. As long as you are happy, you wake up every single morning. You are content. You pray the universe to leave you on this earth, but also to to be able to have 
amazing people. On my podcast, I was talking about having people who are rooted uh, in your life. They are fundamental in your life. Maybe two or three individuals uh, who have done something for you that you should always say thank you. But also having understanding that, you know, people are like leaves. They will disappear. But surrounding yourself with good people who cares about you, who can advise you, you must be humble always. Uh, to listen to other people's advice because we don't know it all. Mm -hmm. I don't know it all. And I, I'm always learning. I'm in a constant learning mode in learning from other people, listening to what they have to say, and then take what I need and what I don't need and and, and spread that across all. So I, I think I'm a good mother. Compared <laughs> to my mother, I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> but just, you know, are you, are you very loving or are you, you know, more of a, more stoic, how, are you do you smother him with affection yes um, and we love we love each other pierre and i he's a very <laughs> sweet young man and uh he's very tough i'm very tough with him just because mm -hmm. i don't want i don't want him to think that you know uh i build up his life for him you know i i was telling mm -hmm. him the other day you now have friends in every single city in the world you are the you are the united states beneficiary <laughs> <laughs> You know, you got friends in every city. All you need to send an email to somebody in Nepal, in uh, you know, in the Caribbean. So you can actually go and spend time with Raquel right now if you want yes. to. But Absolutely. you know, so I was, I was, I was just saying to him how lucky he is to. Yes. I think one of the things that is really interesting about your question is that connections. I think sometimes mm. our children mm. and our friends, our people yes. don't value the connections we have. You know, you and I build up our connections. We are reputable. Yes. We know. People knows if you say anything about, you know, your country, climate change, everyone knows, oh, you need to speak to that person. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I'm teaching to my son and I'm teaching to my friends, children, is that build the connections. Don't break relationships. Yes. Uh, oh, my goodness. You know, really good value, really value every single person you meet, bad or good, they're going to teach you a lesson. But, yes. but always, always, always respect people because tomorrow... If I'm no longer here, you want to go to Nepal, you know who to talk to. If you want to go to mm. Barbados, you know who to speak to. But yeah. if you don't appreciate people, you don't respect them, you take them for granted, you yeah. don't value who they are. Tomorrow, if you want to go to Nepal, no one cares, right? Yeah. And so I said to my son, really value every single person you meet on the train, on the bus, on the plane. Say hello. How are you? Give your business card. Build a relationship. That's one of the things I've learned in my life being mm -hmm. not having a mother or a father or a network of people that I've been to school with for a very long time yeah. uh, I believe I really value every single person I meet and I love I respect them because without them I'm nothing like in Africa we say Ubuntu I am mm. because you are so I'm here today because of you oh I love that I love Ubuntu it's my favorite it's my favorite all right and what kind of leader are you like what would your team say about what kind of leader you are <laughs> my dear, I am very tough. I'm very tough. Uh, they will say I'm tough, but I'm actually very fair. I try to uh, bring the best of them, you know, but mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm very, you know, uh, impatient for change. I want them to understand that it's an opportunity. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't have a chance to work. People, people wouldn't give me a job. You know, I didn't have credentials or connections mm -hmm. or network. Uh, so I, I, every single job, I had four jobs. Every single job, I was like, 1000% uh, in today we have the new generation when they have connection with you or me they think they can just do whatever no you work yeah. so hard to be where you are today so I always yeah. say to my team appreciate the opportunity you have uh, yeah. you know work hard because no one else 
will give you a chance. But also if you have a leader that, uh, you know, give you wisdom, you know, because some leaders are just there, you do your work and you go home. But if you have, yeah. a, if you have a leader that spent time with you on Zoom or, uh, you know, educate you or inform you, always appreciate that. So I'm a kind of like, um, you know, mentor slash uh, leader. They can do whatever they want to do, but I'm always trying to make sure they become better human beings. I believe when you know better, you do better. Absolutely. And and how can people support I Am The Code? How can we support the work, that the incredible work that you're doing? Well, I Am The Code.org is out there. You know, during COVID-19, I responded to the United Nations need and requirements. Uh, now I Am The Code has really scaled as an organization. We, were, we didn't have a product before, and now we have a product, which is a gift to the African continent and all of our listeners uh, listening right now in the Caribbean, so wherever you are. You can now go on the I Am The Code platform, sign up and learn how to code for free. I mm -hmm. build up a platform uh, you know, with uh, very, very uh, solid partnerships across the world to respond to the post-COVID-19 uh, issues. You can now go and learn how to code. You can uh, test your code. You can learn life skills, soft skills. It's free. I made it free. You don't pay for anything. You also have certifications within the lab. So if you are a woman right now sitting down in, uh, you know, in Trinidad or Tobago or Barbados, whatever you are in or the, the world, Caribbean or whatever, anywhere, yes. Whatever you wanna, you wanna upskill your your skill as a program manager or as a web three person or as a fintech or whatever you want. Uh, there are over nine thousand courses. Um, on the platform is absolutely free but also we have partnered with 195 universities across the world where the, the certification is not just like a random certification a certification from google from apple from big companies from ibm so this was my gift during covid19 so during covid19 i sat for two years without going out and posting anything on social media uh, people know me as being a pioneer so i build the things i love building things and so this is uh, now the next step for us as a as citizens to really use something that is meaningful. If you really are in the coding world, there are plethora of, of uh, platforms, you know, you can go from one place to another place, but companies are looking for people that have skills, specific skills. If you yeah. want to work for Meta right now, as a as a full-time, full-stack developer, as a full-stack developer or a, you know, UX designer, they're looking for something very specific tool. So yeah. I Am The Code is giving you discipline, but also in a way for you to sit down and learn within 12 weeks or six months, a very specific skill, have your certification, test your code, put it on your certification and go in and, 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 and hunt for a job. And this is, this is what I've been doing for the last 12 months. It's really popular now. We have 38,000 people into the platform. I Am The Code is now in 78 countries. So I'm really calling for your audience to, if they're struggling, if you are struggling and listening to this podcast right now, you want to upskill yourself for 2023. You don't know what's going on. You're a bit confused. It's November, December coming up soon. You don't know what to do for January. Please, please go out there. Talk to my team. And like I said, you're not going to pay for any penny because one course normally costs $9,000. If you're going to pay for program management role or design thinking role uh, a course or any other course, they cost so much money. But uh, with I Am The Code, I made it free. Beautiful. And then what, what, is, your, what is your hope? How do, we, how do we get more diversity in, in these companies, in, these, in Meta, in Apple, in Google? How do we get more diversity? Because it's not just a certification, because we know we have an, any number of, of women and uh, people of color who are who are qualified but just don't get in. How do we get more diversity in these spaces? 
one of the things that is lacking the most, uh, Raquel, is opportunities. People don't have opportunities, right? They don't have chances. Uh, no one is vouching for them. Uh, their CVs are not updated or they don't have networks. Right now, I'm teaching a course around how to build your network, right? But mm. build your network with integrity and credibility because your mm. name is a very powerful name in the Caribbean. So my name is a very powerful mm. name where I am. You know, we didn't, we didn't seek to have our names to be out there, but because of our experience, because of our experience, expertise, what we've done for all these decades, people recognize who we are. So I ask young boys and girls listening to your podcast to really build the things. And you have to sit down and start building. In Africa, we consume, but we don't mm. create. I'm a creator. Mm. I'm a builder. I'm an artist. I build the stuff. And so, and then my legacy is to leave that here when I'm no longer here is to build, but we don't build. The podcast you are doing is you are building content. And so my job as an African woman, as your sister, is to come and help you enrich your content, enrich your podcast. Yeah. But the more we understand about this content creation, this making sure that my voice will probably go to all the wave in Caribbeans today, it's not for you we're doing this. It's we're doing this because you want people in your audience, people in your country to be enlightened. And we yeah. need to also sometimes thinking about this is just for my friend Raquel. No, it's, a, it's actually you are doing a service to your country by bringing new people to share their ideas in your podcast. So the more people That's we have true. in your podcast, the more people we have sharing your podcast, the better it is for your country and for the world. Let's think about humanity, but let's share information uh, but at the same time, when someone gives you something, pay it forward. If you have listened to this mm -hmm. podcast today, because without Raquel, you may never have met me before. You may never heard about my story. But when you get this podcast today, share it on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, everywhere. Go and share with your friends. Sharing is loving. The more you share the podcast, the more there's a young girl sitting right now in Barbados or somewhere saying, oh, my God, I've listened to that podcast. It's coming from Mrs. Moses' podcast. Mm -hmm. I am going to go and learn how to code. This is how you, the multiplying effect, that's how you change humanity. We're not going to change mm -hmm. humanity by being selfish, by being think about ourselves, by being me and myself and I. No, society will not change like that. In Africa, the Caribbeans, in Brazil, in Latin America, the way we change our continent, our societies, is by working together, by collaborating. Because tomorrow, the only thing we have left, if we leave this earth, all you're going to hear is my voice and what I've mm -hmm. done. Not my mm. money, not my watches, not anything else. So really mm. think about that, boys and girls, if you're listening to this podcast, remember that she's giving you a gift. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lady Mariam. Always, always, always a great conversation with you. I look forward. I'm sad that I won't see you at COP27, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to the next time I see you. And, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. I, I love I Am The Code. I think it's amazing. I think that lots of, of, of leaders will benefit from it. And I hope a lot of young people as well, you know, just knowing that there's somewhere to go and that we have a goal and we want to teach up one million girls how to, le to learn how to code. And I think it's, 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 it's doable, but we all have to work together. All right. Thank you so Thank much. You and thanks me. again, if you haven't already subscribed. Uh -huh. Please subscribe and like and comment and share and, and certainly uh, tell us what you think. How, what has this made you think about and, and how are you going to approach what you're doing and your networking and how you're, you're building your, your competencies and, and how you're being grateful for, for what you're already doing while, while aspiring to greater things in the future. Thank you so much and talk to you soon.
and welcome back to Getting to the Top, where I interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey in hopes that we inspire you on your own leadership journey, as well as follow in their footsteps and learn something new. So today I have the honor of interviewing Ms. Diane Henderson. She has over 30 years experience in sport management with a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology. She holds the position of the president of the Trinidad and Tobago Olympic Committee. On her third quadrennial from the 2022 to 2025, she held the positions of chair of the Women in Sport Commission, chef the mission of the Commonwealth Games in Gold Coast, as well as Pan Am Games, Toronto and Lima. She was the assistant chef de mission of the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Scotland. She has championed the Trinidad and Tobago International Mar Marathon for 13 years. And she's a past executive of the Trinidad and Tobago Triathlon Federation, where she continues to actively participate as a technical official on the World Triathlon Multisport Committee for a four year term. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Getting to the Top, Diane. Thank you, thank you, Happy to be here. Wonderful. So you know, I'm. I was so delighted because we had spent so much time talking about the future's female and and you know, uh, women in leadership, and needing to have uh, the first female president of the Trinidad and Tobago Olympic Committee. And here you are, and here it is. How does it feel? Um. Still a little bit surreal. Um, it's like an out of body experience in the uncomfortable zone every day. <laughs> and you know, it's it's amazing, but there are not very many female heads of national Olympic committees globally. It's just not not a very common thing. There, there are now. There are. They're increasing. In fact, in the Caribbean, I think we have a few, and with the um, as we host the um, Canuck General Assembly this weekend, I'm sure we will see all of them there. Lovely. And so how, how, has, how did you start? How did you get started? How, what, was, what, what did you think you were going to be as, as, a, as a youngster, as a little girl? You grew up, um, you, were, you had siblings. Tell me about how you, get, how you got started, how you, be, how you came into being. Um, I think this is my love for sport. I was extremely athletic, a little wild, tomboyish. So I was always into athletics and did swimming and little dance, but um, running became my thing. And um, I did that um, primarily as I grew into my twenties and everything. But then I also volunteered through distance running. I volunteered to do road races and um, we worked and put on road races. So the whole idea of getting involved in administration started very early okay. in my 20s. So um, understanding how to manage a race and doing those things come extremely natural. And then obviously you put yourself through different courses that come up. Yeah. You know, I did the, the it, it, <laughs> something jumped out to me recently when I saw a, a, a file was the TTOC um, administrative course. I did that in 2001 or something like that. So, um, you know, I've been doing um, sport management courses and sport science and all different and technical officials coaching for a very long time mm -hmm. throughout my whole um, tenure. And that was just adding up knowledge and experience over the years, you know. Very so, nice. 
So what was the first, first sport you, you played? What do you remember about like your first sporting experience? Well, in school, basically we did athletics. So that was more, my choices were netball and for non-athletics, non team sport was netball. Mm -hmm. And athletics was high jump and sprints or high jump and running, you know, so. Wow. So how does, how, how does, how do you get into high jump? The, the coach just says, you know, I think Diane, you have some potential or you just. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was my, um, that little always all over the place kind of thing. But I just was, okay, I'll try that. I'll do that. You know, um, maybe nobody else could have and I did it. So, you know, you choose whatever you figure is out of the box kind of thing <laughs> and and in terms of and what did your parents think um i'm not sure at that time maybe they were happy that i was all you know very active i have two had two brothers so the whole thing about it is is that you know you're always there um involved i mm -hmm. think the important thing is my mother used to play tennis so the the whole idea of being active came from the parents we have a very sporting um, the Hendersons is a very sporting and musical family. So sport was part of what you did. You know, um, that came natural to the family. Go do some sport. Nice. <laughs> so what did your brothers do? Oh, well, one actually played more music, but I think cricket and football and, and that, that sort of thing. And okay. then eventually cycling came into the, to the thing a little later on. So you graduate from high school and then you, you discover, you know, was it at, at high school or college level that you discovered this could be a career? Oh, no. Um, well, hmm, that's a good question. When? But not maybe high school, but when I, in my 20s, when I was doing all of this administration, definitely I knew I loved sports. So, and, and just the way, manner in which um, I think there was a particular efficiency that I had in wanting to get these things done to the best quality mm -hmm. output, you know, that we can do. So um, all that experience carried on to different committees, just volunteering for committees, being involved. Um, I think that leadership or leading comes as a result of having a passion to want to see something get done. Mm, so yes. therefore, so therefore, you know, you, you, you then get involved to make sure that it can be done to the best of your ability. And then you end up leading, whether it's your colleagues or who is there on the team with you or you're contributing into getting it done as the best that the team can get done. Yeah. And so then you, you get into sports administration and then you have this, this illustrious career in sports administration, in sports management. And so tell us about your career. Um, I, the first, well, Roadrunners Club is where I did all the road running administration, um, road races. And then what happened is the entries, not to their, um, you know, um, shortfall, but they were focused mainly on sprints and distance running wasn't getting that, um, that assistance or focus. And the distance running clubs decided to put forward people and make a distance running um, team or committee. And I was put forward and there I was as a member going up for um, the committee and I, and I was the first female, you know, wow. and simply like that. It's really and truly that somebody met, reminded me that I was the first female years after because those things, you know, you just do, you don't really take cognizance as they do now. 
Right. But then I recognized, yes, I was that at the time. But um, so after N3As was um, triathlon and or a cycling group. And from then it went on to triathlon because I, I broadened my scope of sports mm-hmm. and went into cycling and brought back the swimming and went into that sport, which I love to today. And um, it touched on a lot of other things like adventure racing and hiking, which I still love. So, you know, you do all these other little um, races and stuff, and then you in, in, increase the distance. But while doing that, in everything I did, I always played a hand in the, in the committee or always played a hand in assisting in something, you know, giving, imparting my knowledge. But it seems as though, you know, during these times and many and on many of these occasions, you would have been at times one of very few women or one of the only women in the room. And it seems as though you almost didn't even notice. You were just, just get it done. Just, just do what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think that um, by the triathlon time, there were females, mm-hmm. but still, still overpowered um, two to one men. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's about, it's just about getting the work done. You know, yeah. you go in there and you get the work done. Nobody really, you don't really look to see who's on your side, right or left. Were you, were you, you had to have been underestimated at some point in, in all of this. I, I know that, um, I can't remember, you know, I've done, I've done four marathons myself. And I, I remember I was talking to somebody and this man came to explain to me what a marathon was. And I was just like, thanks. <laughs> I've done four. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate, you know, the, the, the explanation, but you know, have you had any of those experiences where, you know, people are just sort of just not, not, not assuming that you would be such a powerhouse in sports. I still think I'm underestimated. Good. Okay. <laughs> so, and that, that, that just goes maybe for a feeling of all women, because yeah. no matter where we reach, we are still underestimated because nobody really, but let's say not nobody, mm-hmm. but some people just don't value what you can, or what you have done, yeah. whether or not it's a, it's a, a big item thing or a consistent thing across the board. Yeah. You know, um, the main thing is that um, some very true words, I think that, um, one of my ex-bosses have said is that you add value. Yeah. It's one of the most nourishing things you can tell somebody is that you add value. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you, you contribute. Yeah. But I remember, you know, in, in the time on the, on the Olympic committee, you're always very, very focused, very um, deliberate, very wanting to see things happen. And that seems to have served you very, very well in your career, you know, just kind of like, listen, let's just get everybody together and let's get it done. Where did that come from? Was that part of your upbringing or you oh. think the, the <laughs> athleticism brought that to you? What do you think delivered that to you? Might, might be a combination, but I think a lot of that is my father. Very, very workaholic, very, very, um, you know, and very early, you he put you, okay, do a secretarial course, you know, that was patriarchal um, era. Boys get to do certain things, the girls do that. Yes. <laughs> so became very, very independent. And since then, it's about me having to push myself. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of um, thing. So whether or not you, 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 you have no choice and you feel as though you need to do it or else nobody else can do it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and with that too, you know, you go in in my work life, you know, you 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 have an objective, and you say, okay, let's do it this way. Yes, you get together a certain a number of people, but whether or not, you know, you're there, getting ideas, making ideas happen, and trying to to just get it done. So being a chef de mission is has to be a very very huge responsibility, and one that tell me about your first experience serving in that capacity. Um, Right, so this, this, the first one was assistant at Glasgow, mm -hmm. but I was obviously learning and being guided. But the next year I did Toronto, I was wow. a chef. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a lot of it is, I, I don't think people realize, but a lot of it is, um, and thanks to TTNC, um, understanding and respecting the role of doing the work, because mm -hmm. a lot of it you have to actually, is administrative. There's a lot of um, work online with yeah. the collaboration and the accreditation and all of that that you have to do the entire team you know and a hundred and something people to manage and getting all the information and <laughs> is a lot of um stuff so yes it's like jumping in and swimming thank god i know how to swim <laughs> so um you know yeah it's 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 like that yeah so you have to really roll with the punches be a quick learner and learn to adapt to receiving information, lots of it, and trying to keep abreast of that information. You're really afloat. Yeah. You're keeping on being abreast of that information and, and, and trying to go with it as the, the guidelines are, are quick and many. So for someone who doesn't understand what a chef de mission, walk us through it. What, what does that entail? Okay. You, you're preparing so to go off chef... games and you're right, and you're the person <laughs> responsible for everything. Making sure that so everybody first is, all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. First of all, it's a multi-sport game. Most of the, the the activities or events that most of the sporting organizations do are one sport. Right. So these could be 10 sports, it could be 15 sports, and you have athletes or teams for all of those sports. Mm -hmm. And these these games already have templates and management systems in which they manage all this information. However, every country has to submit to deadlines all of the information for each individual athlete and official that is put forward. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so the whole idea is that you have to be, you have to be getting that information from the, the NSOs, um, making sure that selection and, and, and all the performance and the qualifications are up and above board um having meetings with them keeping them abreast of information and the deadlines making sure we get that information because if we don't get that information we then will be under serious um issues you know what i mean and we want to be an efficient olympic committee of course of course so and and you're responsible for it and you know you, you make sure everybody's where they need to be and how do you deal with it's something that we all we all have to struggle with but I think under a situation like that, where you're responsible for the team and there are competing requirements, how do you, how do you manage that? Because, you know, these are things that are time sensitive. These are athletes, so they're very high performers. These are coaches who are, you know, care about their athletes. And so it has to be a really high pressure, high, high stress kind of situation. So how do you deal with those competing demands and, and especially when tensions are high? Hmm. You know, years ago in the early 2000, I um, used to, in Angostura, I used to multitask a lot. I used to do 
three or four events, doing my HR work. Um, you know, it, it, it was a lot of multitasking. And that gave me the experience to really do that now. However, um, I have learned that sometimes you have to focus on one thing at a time mm -hmm. in order to really get the, get the quality. But also, um, I had an experience where the multitasking was not all that great. You can, your brain can get bogged. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> um, in fact, I was arranging about three or four things in one weekend. One actually was in my administrative um, thing. One actually was the Olympic managing about two, three, four teams for the Olympic um, relay, the Olympic mm -hmm. day relay they had on the promenade. Mm -hmm. That could have been 2002 or three. Mm -hmm. And um, I was I was doing teams for Angus Tour. I was doing teams for the running clubs. Uh, so, you know, um, that alone, and plus I had a, a whole Christmas party function to arrange, um, I don't think it was Christmas. It might have been sports there at that time in June. And um, plus other work demands. So, um, you know, with everything else, I went to, and I insisted I must go and ride. I was still competing. I went to ride the Sunday morning uh, with my club and I totally passed out on the ride. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was attributed to my tired the brain yeah. Being tired and um, I just I just passed out riding. Thank God where it was and where the guys yeah, were. And yeah. Everything was good. They asked me, took me to the hospital, but um, my brother was there as well. But the whole thing about it is, is that the experience I I, I knew exactly what it was. Yeah. Because I just probably didn't get enough rest and I was overworking the brain. Yeah. So um, you know, I while you know how to multitask, there are times when you need to have to. It taught me a lot about setting back yeah taking time I changed my entire um manner in which I worked nice. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah yeah I approached everything differently oh, when I take a day to respond it's because I'm just assessing the whole thing <laughs> but I, I don't understand where we get these unreasonable expectations about you, you know you have to respond to everything real time I just I, I, I reject that I reject yes, it. Yes, yes. and I totally <laughs> understand it now Totally. Yes. yes. So that would have that would have just frightened you. That would have frightened you. Um, it it maybe for a little bit, but not really. I think mm -hmm. I am very resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, that's something I learned over the years as well, and my coping strategy. So, um, I I bounced back. Uh -huh. But it did um it did it did rattle a little bit. Helped you. <laughs> a certain and that's why I had to make adjustments. Right, helped you to reprioritize and realize that listen, yes, burning, burning the candle at both ends can cannot happen over and yeah. over and over. And I think a lot of people, you know, it, unfortunately, it takes that kind of wake up call for you to realize what your limits are, and that you have to be, you you have to be sort of patient and 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 take time with yourself. Huh? Yeah, you see, very early. Uh, in my life, I know that wellness is a priority. Exactly. So the whole thing about it is, is that that maybe I was always pushing for the sport and stuff because of that importance on maintaining wellness. Uh -huh. So when this happened, you make then the realization comes up that um, the focus on the mental wellness mm -hmm. and the psychological mental and the emotional is also important. You can't only look at the physical. 
So you have to take care of yourself in those other ways as well. And that's where the taking a step back and, and really assessing and ana analyzing and taking some time out mm -hmm. became so important. So what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Hmm. Um, I think that... Um, <laughs> Um, let me just tell you, eh? good question, by the way. Um, one of the, one of the things is to speak up and have my own voice. Um, and work-wise, one of the things was, um, stay away from, and don't get involved in gossip and mm. informal grapevine story. And as I, as you said, I'm a, always focused and always, you know, on what I have to do, never get involved in whatever. And I pass that, I pass that, um, not the gossip, I pass that information on to others, you know, people who, um, you know, I saw in the workplace that felt that, you know, you needed to just focus on your work. You know? yeah. Don't get involved with other people, what other people say, this kind of thing. But also speaking up because, um, you know, there are times when um, you, you see that, groups in a team and, and you're making decisions, but the dull decision or, or that is made is because nobody really spoke and made those right. points oh. necessary right. to contribute to the um, sort of, you know, um, group think kind of story. Yeah, no one was willing to be devil's advocate. And, you know, yeah. everybody everybody sort of saw what was going wrong and they were just like, yeah, I can't bother. I'll, I'll, I'll just let that happen. And I think that that made me uh, be the devil's advocate. I've, I've always felt that, you know, um, I have a question that I'm not hearing anybody yeah. um, saying. Yeah. You know, so gotta say it, <laughs> even if they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but you seem to take everything in stride. And I think that probably serves you well as well, because, you know, without, without getting into detail, but I, I find that, that, um, you know, in, in, in sport, there seems to be like a lot of, a lot, there's all kinds of legal matters, there are all kinds of disagreements. And so how do you, how do you maintain, and, and I have to say, I've never seen you anything but peaceful, calm, collected, together. Well, thank, you, thank you for that. <laughs> that, how? Is, that is something I learned along the way as well, uh -huh. in environment, because I had a very, very strong temperament. I still have it, but I learned how to manage it. Um, that comes from the Henderson family. But um, I think that it comes with the how I took on the rule mm -hmm. as well. Um, because while, yes, I was encouraged to take on the rule, and that was a battle, a self battle on my own and taking on the rule. Really? But, you um, have to tell me about that. But you know, um, the whole thing, it comes with the confidence thing that we doubt, mm -hmm. you know. But from the time that I made the decision, whether it was a spiritual one for me or whether or not it was, um, you know, a, a confident one for me, the whole point about it is from the time I made the decision and I let go of any thought, I said, okay, I take a day at a time or whatever it is. Yeah. And, 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 and in the position, I realized that I can, I can make a decision. I have the knowledge to make a decision. Yeah. I have a knowledge to have the judgment yeah. in order to respond to whatever is required. Yeah. And I'm realizing that more and more. So it builds the confidence as you go along. 
Sure. And how do you maintain sort of that, that, that peace and composure? Because I think, yeah. <laughs> I don't always think I have the peace and composure, but um, sometimes I think I'm extremely intolerant. But um, I manage it. I, yeah, I just don't know. I, I say, you know, okay, just let it come in and go back out. And maybe that's when the gossip, the thing about the gossip is working all now. Allowing the information to come through and to just go by. And then I will deal with it. Maybe the experience that happened that time for multitasking. I yeah. allow it to assimilate and, and just go. And then I will deal with it. Sometimes I come get up in the morning and I have ideas or I have stuff that I realize is an answer to a question I have. Nice. So you know, so um you you have to leave things sometimes for them to like say where you leave your pot to simmer. Mm-hmm. Leave it to simmer, let it, um, then you get the answer eventually. You, you, you figure it out. And um, sometimes, yes, people think I am delayed, but um, there's the delay for a reason. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to know, to know your own mind and to know what you think and to give that space to evolve in your head. Huh? Because sometimes people want to rush, you to rush you to judgment or rush you to a decision. And you're still, wait a minute, there are lots of pieces moving here. We need to think about the impact of, of this decision, of this move, of, of everything else on where, you know, the, the responsibility of a leader is just taking that step back and being able to look at the parts that other people who are pressing you for a decision aren't even seeing. Yeah. They, they don't even have your, your purview. And so looking at what is, it, what is the impact and, and how will this play itself out? And being you know willing to take they, the time to trust your judgment. Yeah. You know the distance running. I don't know if when you did the marathon that you, you learned about yourself, right? Mm. So sport, sport makes you learn about yourself. I yeah. always tell people a piece of my advice in learning to run a marathon is to run by yourself. Yeah. Don't always run in a group. Yeah. Because, yeah, you can run in your group and train at most times, but you must go and run by yourself because you're on that road on, on your own in the race yeah. and you must know how to have that judgment some people uh, i watched um flora duffy in the race recently and i noticed that recently she doesn't wear a watch and even if i have on a watch i do not pay attention to every single minute and i may right. glance at it but it's not i don't allow it to control me i know me so in the end of the day i follow my feeling not the watch yeah some people go by the watch yeah. you know because they, they're using the time as their guidance yeah so it comes back to you must know yourself in order to um, be true to self and also to the values that you that you um the values that you have to live by the integrity yeah. in, in business yeah so no, from... a big one for me <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely everything above board and and done properly i love that and, and, that's, and that's really, really important and will serve you well. Um, and I'm sure has served you well in, you know, that's so funny when you're talking about the running by yourself. So the first marathon that I did, it was funny. It didn't happen as much on the longer runs, but on the day of the race, as I'm running, I just realized the mental clarity and the, the like, it was almost like my brain was supercharged. And I was just like, and so I literally was running and I had two other friends who ran with me, but they weren't running the full marathon. They were doing the half. And I could estimate based on their pace per mile and their course, where I would see them 
on the course because of where the loop was. And I'm doing this complex math just in my head. And I'm like, nah, this is not, this, this is what I think, but this could not be what's actually going to happen. And sure enough, I said, okay, I'm gonna see David now. And I, there he was. And then I was like, okay, you know, and I, 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 I was like, I can't believe my brain just worked all of that out. My pace, their pace, the route, everything. But it's almost as though just having that blood working through your body and being in that state, it just puts you into this, I don't know, this, this supernatural state. I think that was also because you, if you train with them and you are accustomed and you know the time, those are the things that you learn yeah. automatically, you know? Yeah, so yeah. sometimes we don't need anything else but that, as you say. Yeah, yeah. I think it is it's getting in tune with yourself and understanding yeah. your own rhythm and, and, and being willing to listen to yourself. Yeah. So um, uh, Yasmin, who, who also supported me on my first race, she was, you know, she was quite surprised when I saw her at the end. And I was just like, yeah, I just, I knew this is where I would see you because I had managed to work it all out. But I think it's so, so important, especially for women to get involved in, in sport, because I feel like it gives you an edge. It helps you with mental clarity. It helps you with feeling like you're taking care of yourself. I think a lot of times women tend to like take care of everybody and somehow not take care of themselves. And that tends to be a problem. And, and we have these unrealistic expectations of ourselves and how we are supposed to function. Correct, correct. I think, um, so as much as you are new to this role, you have been preparing for this for throughout your career. All my life. <laughs> yes, all, all your life. And it must, you know, I think it is, it is certainly with, with all of the, the work on, and, you know, talking about futures female, talking about women in sport, looking at the, the changes that we needed to see. It is so gratifying to see this coming to fruition through you in this role and the, yeah. and the, you being you in your role and not trying to be anybody else and not trying to, you know what I mean? Just owning this role in your own space and being willing to do that and feeling confident enough to do that. And you talked about your doubts and confidence and the battles. And I, I can't imagine as, as, as elite an athlete as, as you are, how that could happen. But, but tell me about that battle. Like, how could you have any doubt that you would be absolutely amazing at this role um you know it may have a lot to do with who i was as a young person coming up and and those doubts so you, you always you know have some little things that um you're just not sure about of, of yourself mm. and that goes through your life and everybody has something that they live with yeah you know what i mean yeah. so um you know so when this was presented <laughs> there were some days and weeks that, you know, um, that I was thinking about it and really, really, I think I had more sleepless nights prior to April 30 than I had after, you know, some people would worry after the fact. Mm -hmm. So my, my thing was before Maybe I made yeah. the decision. Yeah. So that's, that's why I'm saying is until I made the decision, I had all this, you know, battle with myself, you know, yeah. can I, or can I not, you know, this kind of thing. But after that, 
was when I had made decision, I said, okay, I have to do this, I can do this, let me do it. Then I just accepted that for myself and said, look, let me just do a day at a time, take it in stride and, and, and go with it as that. So therefore I built that confidence in myself and wanting to just do it like that, you know, not letting anything bother me. If something slips in the mind, I quickly put it at bay and just focus, yeah. <laughs> focus on, on, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, not not wanting to allow anything to to creep in there. Yeah. And those must have been skills that you would have learned as an athlete, huh? because you need to like block out all of the noise when you're getting when you're preparing for a race. When you're you know you have to block out noise yeah. and focus. Yeah. 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 You have to focus. You have to um you know go in for that first place in your age group, or you know you see two people you need to pass, or <laughs> you know yeah no you have to you know and you're in the present. Yeah. And just um, taking a step at, at a time. So I heard um, about this, this other podcast that I was um, hearing about where Reese Witherspoon was talking about her role playing um, June Carter and how she called her lawyer. She was calling the director. She didn't want to do it. She doesn't want to do it because she feels like she's not going to do it well. This is a, you know, this is a living person. She's going to do it badly. She can't sing. And she's complaining and, and talking herself out of it and hiding from this role. And then she ends up winning an Oscar. And people are like, you know, how, how is it possible? And she was obviously because of the Oscar, but, but when you see her in this role, how could you possibly have doubted that you would have done yes. this justice? And she said, you know, to this day, she's, she doesn't, she isn't necessarily convinced that she was the right person to play that role, but mm -hmm. she went into it doing the best that she could yeah. and then decided to stop fighting against herself in this role. Yeah. And I think that's, until you, until you decide that, listen, just do it and don't fight yourself. It's the battle with yourself that causes the, the issue. Yeah. But from the time you, you give in and maybe say a prayer or do whatever it is that makes you be at peace with yourself, yeah. then you start to focus on what is required. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it goes back to what you were saying earlier is that you add value. You add value. And just, and just you know, accepting that and being at peace with that and understanding listen, you know, as long as I come to this thing and I bring my best self and I do, do my utmost best, I will do it justice. I will do it justice from my perspective. And I, I, I don't have to do it like anybody else. I just have to, to be the best version of me. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that's very true. That's very true. So what are you most looking forward to in this role? What's the next sort of big thing? Oh, well, we have the CYG, the Commonwealth Youth Games next year. But it's one huge. of the things that, yes, we're already, um, we're already um, working towards it. But um, I think what really would be one of the things that um, I really, really think I'm looking forward to is ensuring that the TTOC has a home, mm -hmm. you know, um, ensuring that that legacy of an Olympic house is set and uh, I think we need it sooner than later. So I really would like to at least set the ground for that, literally, <laughs> and, um, and get it done. Yeah. 
And what about, um, what kind of sort of leader and mentor are you? Because I know that a lot of, not just young women, but young men as well, look up to you. So what kind of leader are you? How, how does... Hmm. <laughs> should really should really ask other people what they think I'm, what type of leader I am but um you know I I I think I'm engaging person because I'm very operational mm -hmm. sometimes I, I um you know I like to be involved yeah <laughs> so, um so uh I don't know um I'd say you're collaborative as well I would definitely yeah, say collaborative yeah, yeah. definitely engaging you know, and I'm, collaborative yeah yeah I, I I'm not the although I may appear very um on the sides or or something or observant I rarely get into what it is I like to be in in it yeah yeah and what advice would you give for um, someone coming up in, in sports administration? I think there are lots of uh, tremendous young women who are coming through the ranks. And what advice would you give to them? Yeah. I, I, think, I think I mentioned it earlier, but um, you have to go for it. Start mm -hmm. earlier than later mm -hmm. to, to do whatever it is that your interest is. Start early. Don't wait for that opportune time. Get involved in stuff early and go for it because confidence is built in the action, not before the action. Wow, <laughs> that is such great advice. That is such great advice. Yeah. 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 And you know what's what is absolutely so insane? So the person who was interviewing um, Reese with a spoon, I think his name was Adam Grant, and he wrote this book that I absolutely love. I just finished reading called Think Again. And he said exactly that confidence is built in doing it don't wait until you get the confidence you will get the confidence as you're doing the thing and it will it will you know it's 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 going to to, to help you to to build up you see yeah, so, so yeah so so the next thing you need to think about whether before you finish this role or office is writing the book i'm not sure the book is going to be about the olympic movement <laughs> it might be something else because I had a, my, a thought of something before the, the Olympism, um, this Olympic um, experience has come about. So you never know. Oh, I'd love to hear what that's about. What would that be about? Oh, more, more, more um, personal um, interests and, and, and experiences along the way that, um, you know, have made you come here. Maybe some things that I've just said, but... Um, you know, people don't really think of all those things that you go through that are really a thing until yeah. afterwards. And we didn't, at that time, we didn't keep logs of things that we did. Like now they capture everything yeah. that you know you do. Um, I still don't take logs of, of anything, you know, really and truly. Everything is in mind, but um, yeah, but, but they're, they're, they're things, they're more personal. Very nice, very nice. Well, I know that your your faith is is certainly very important to you, and 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 it comes through in in how you carry yourself, and and the things that you see, and the energy that you bring, and and I know that that has been um it's an it certainly is an example because you 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 sort of glide through very quietly confident and peaceful, and you know you don't seem to kind of get down into the fray. You just seem to kind of stay even killed. And I, I've admired that from afar for some time. 
If it's one thing you told me today is that, and I'm going to take that away. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. And tell me about a time when you have created transformation. Tell me about, uh, on your journey, tell me about a transformation that you've created. Um, okay, so while working at Angostura, part of my portfolio was about um, wellness and employee relations and, and organizing. Um, I, I set up the gym and organized um, events and sporting activities to get the employees engaged and so. But what was what is extremely good workshops and everything. So what was really transforming, transforming was um, the lives, the employees themselves and their mindsets and mm -hmm. how they change their lifestyles yeah. um, to incorporate um, wellness uh, or whether it's just walking or whatever wellness activities that they did for themselves. They, yeah. they understood the importance of it after all the different things that they, they had available to them, yeah. you know, and um, being able to change what choices they make. Mm. For better them, yeah, yeah. So, so that I think, um, because you know, more than more than um, every time the retiree I had to deal with the retirees when they were leaving, and every time a retiree would be leaving, I would say, okay, now you have time to focus on your wellness, and they yeah. would always come back and tell me, thank you, or they did this, or they did that, you know. So, um, so I feel very good about that. I think that's great. And the, 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 the brilliant part of it all is you are now at the head of the Olympic Committee with the ability to, to help transform a nation through wellness, through looking after ourselves, through being better at, at taking care of ourselves and having that spotlight. So, so I'm looking forward to seeing the results of that because we definitely need to take better care of ourselves. Excellent. And thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. I was so excited to see this come to fruition. The first female head of the Trinidad and Tobago Olympic Committee, Miss Diane Henderson, who is breaking down barriers, breaking glass ceilings and, you know, sharing the journey with thank all you. of us. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for thank you for watching. Thank you for subscribing. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Um, this has been another episode of Getting to the Top, where we in, interview transformational leaders about their journey as they are changing things and making them better for all of us. Thank you so much and see you next time. Mm -hmm.